You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Charlotte. Thank you for your hand at work in her life from the very beginning. And thank you, Lord, for the way you delight to work through her to minister to each one of us. And thank you for bringing each one of us here. We trust you, God. We trust that you have brought each one of us here into this room this morning for your own special purpose for our lives. And so we ask, Lord, that through um, Charlotte's words and through your written word, your holy scriptures, and through your word made flesh, through your son, Jesus Christ, that you would cause the word of the gospel, the good news of God's great love for us, to be manifested in our midst this morning. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do in our midst in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, it really, it feels like being home. I I think I've said to like five of y'all, I'm like, the Advent has a smell, and I just forget it until I walk back into the doors, and ugh, it's just like home. Um, Thank you, Deborah, and thank y'all for inviting me. Um, I think I want to go down as daughter of the parish on my uh, tombstone, because I was like, (laughs) I'm not a doctor, but I could be a daughter of the parish. Um, Okay, so I'm going to pray, too. We can't get enough prayers here. Um, Lord Jesus... Thank you so much for this opportunity to be um, home here at the Advent for each of your um, just wonderful children that are in this room right now, that you would speak to us, that you would speak through me. Um, If there's anything dumb or not of you that's going to come out of my mouth, that people would forget about it immediately. Um, And pray that you would just do your work um, over this room. Uh, In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to scoot this a tiny closer so I can reach my computer. Um, okay, so I'm going to begin by reading uh, this story, one of my uh, favorites found in Genesis um, 16. And you can follow along if y'all, can y'all read that? You can read that. Um, okay, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. A strange line of thought. Um, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So, after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave to Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Go figure. (laughs) Abram says, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And a few verses later, scripture says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. 
For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roi. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Love that. We don't do that in California. <laughs> so, I really struggled to write this talk, y'all. Like, really. A few months ago, I got super excited about the topic, being seen by God, longing to be seen for everything we are, exactly as we are, to be fully and completely known. These are universal longings, right? Uh, It was also a theme I had identified as a need uh, that wasn't being met in my own life. My husband was working long hours. My kids' school situation had just suddenly altered in a way that had just made a major impact on our lives. I was homesick for my friends and family in the Southeast. I was struggling with chronic illness and in the throes of desert dryness in the way of creativity, as in writing, as in my really edgy identity. I just felt sort of unhinged, transparent to the world, to my world, in no way at all like Hagar's situation. But still, I could relate. Several months later, when I actually sat down to put my thoughts to paper for today, it occurred to me that all of those earlier feelings and just, um, of just general isolation were still lingering. This deep, aching sense of loneliness, of feeling unknown or even unknowable, had burrowed its way into me. Now, I knew the obvious answer, and that although I felt translucent, like some sad little sheet of saran wrap, God saw me and knew me, and that's all that really mattered. No duh, right? But when it came to pouring this truth out to y'all, I was floundering. In fact, I wrote at least two drafts of this talk that I'm not going to use today. They were funny, witty, made me sound wildly interesting and intelligent, (laughs) and they also had the distinct whiff of complete BS. (laughs) The talk I'm actually about to give was born out of the most pitiful weakness, vulnerability, and even a little bit of shame to confess that what I came to realize is this. I'm not sure I have actually, actually felt or comprehended what it truly means to be seen and to be known by God. So here's where he began to do his work on me. In a wild panic, panic, staring at pages and pages of exceptionally captivating nonsense, the Holy Spirit urged me to close my computer, to go get in a hot bath, to forget about Hagar for a minute and what it means to be seen by God, and instead to think about what it means to be loved by God. Now, two things dawned on me in that moment. First, maybe being seen by God has something to do with being loved by God. And secondly, if that's true, and if I didn't know what it truly meant to be seen by God, then I probably didn't know what it truly meant to be loved by God, which was kind of a scary thought for someone like me. Maybe some of you can track with me here today. Maybe you aren't feeling seen or loved because of the isolation that comes with age or illness, or divorce, or parenting young children, yikes. Maybe you have absolutely no idea who you are. Maybe you've isolated yourself by some truly awful behavior. Maybe you feel isolated in your marriage, 
Or perhaps you're on the other end of that spectrum in the painful solitude of singledom. Maybe you've been trying to have a baby for years or feel isolated by God himself. Maybe you've suffered unthinkable loss. Whether physically or emotionally, whether surrounded by walls of faces or stuck between the walls of your own bedroom, in any scenario, we have all experienced what it's like to feel so alone, so unseen, that your skin physically hurts for lack of any meaningful connection or affirmation. You know that God loves his people. I mean, it's in the Bible, and you're technically one of his people. So it stands to reason that God loves you specifically. But maybe, like me, your knowledge of God's love for you kind of stops there with just a basic acceptance that it must be true. Y'all, I honestly thought I really believed God loved me until suddenly, because of this talk, he made it very clear to me that no, I actually did not. And like the late Mary Oliver says in one of her poems, I have not forgotten the way, but a little the way to the way. Also, PSA, I'm going to quote Mary Oliver a bunch today, so buckle up. (laughs) Anyway, I knew um, that God loved me, but I had lost touch with the width and the depth and the height, the breadth, the shape, and the feel of that love. Of course, now I have it all figured out, so you're about to hear it all. No, I do not. (laughs) But I want to share with you today what God has been speaking over me in this little crisis. So if to be loved and to be seen have this sort of symbiotic thing going on, then where exactly was the way to the way? Well, I started down this murky path with the footsteps of a child. I looked up the dictionary definition of the word love. Um, So stay with me here and let's observe. I'm going to read a few of these. Um, As a noun, love means strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties, attraction based on sexual desire, affection and tenderness felt by lovers, an assurance of affirmation, warm attachment, enthusiasm or devotion, the object of attachment or devotion. And as a verb, it means to hold dear, to like or desire actively, to thrive in. So as we begin to think about these descriptions in terms of God's love for us, a few things stood out to me, and I'll put them up in bold on the screen. Love, by this definition, seems to be personal and pointed, not broad and spread out in general. It is specific. It has an object. Love is physical, tangible, certain, undeniably there and with us. It is warm and unwavering and selfless. It has gestures. It makes gestures. It is active, held captive, always working, and it delights. So my next childlike step was to conduct a word search on BibleGateway.com. This is like how a first grader does research. Um, I did a word search on BibleGateway.com for the word love, right? Okay, let's see what the Bible uh, says about love. And y'all, the results were so interesting. One of the most striking discoveries I made came from the Old Testament, and particularly in Genesis, which we all know was sort of a dicey time, what with the whole fall of man thing. Um... In the Old Testament, the word love as it pertains to God's love for his people is almost always 
either preceded or followed by the word steadfast. The steadfastness of his love is reiterated, confirmed, over and over and over again throughout Scripture. Y'all, I do not think this had ever been pointed out to me before, and it's prolific. I'm not a mathematician, obviously, but I'd estimate that over 90% of the time where Old Testament Scripture is ascribing God's love for us, it is accompanied by this word. So Exodus 15:13 says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Psalm 59 says, My God in his steadfast love will meet me. Psalm 103 says, He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And again, we're seeing evidence that the quality of God's love is physical, intimate, certain, undeniably there and with us. By these verses, God's love leads us, it meets us, and it crowns us. It shows up as a cloud by day and a fire by night. It is not an obscure idea for us to merely accept or know. It is active. It has arms and legs. It moves. So the dictionary definition of steadfast is this. Firmly fixed in place, not subject to change. Boom. It's pretty clear. Not subject to change. Guys, if you think people are bad today, the doofuses throughout the Old Testament are some real question marks. (laughs) Like, really. And yet, God's love for them is not subject to change. He keeps showing up and reminding this nasty group of people over and over how his love for them in particular is steadfast, even when their circumstances and their behavior, behavior are truly, truly awful. Psalm 136 alone repeats this phrase a whopping 26 times throughout its verses. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. This is extremely good news. And I'm not calling my research meticulous by any means, but I think it is very telling that only once did I come across the term steadfast love as it pertains to the way humans are able to love. It's in the book of Judges where we read that they did not show steadfast love. (laughs) So we cannot rely on the love of other people to remain constant and sure and satisfying, right? Even thousands and thousands of years ago, this is true. Human love is subject to change. It just is. We all know this. Human love is unreliable. Which which is why I honestly think it's so hard for us to even wrap our heads around um, the idea of God's love being steadfast. It's like we can't, we have nothing to even compare it to, really. Um, That there's nothing we can do or not do to make it waver. His love is fixed. It is fixed on you. It is fixed on me from everlasting to everlasting. So literally the day after I had this steadfast love revelation, I was reading my Paul David Tripp devotional, And don't you know it, the theme was God's steadfast love. And if you think that his love isn't particular and specific to each one of us individually, just look at that magic. It was truly weird. Never heard the steadfast love thing before and then boom. So Tripp says this, We have no experience in our lives of this kind of love. You always begin to understand anything that is new to you from the vantage point of your own experience. 
All the human love we've experienced has been flawed in some way, but not God's. His love is perfect and perfectly steadfast forever. It is the single most stunning reality in the life of a believer. God has placed his love on us, and he will never again remove it. So, let's dig into this a little bit. First, God sees us, and his love remains, even in our sin. When the Bible mentions human love, it is overwhelmingly in reference to our lovers, as in the things we turn to in order to feel seen and loved, like money, friends, sex, vacations, internet blogging. (laughs) God's people, since the dawn of time, have struggled to fully comprehend or accept the magnitude of what God really means when he says he knows us and he loves us. Almost everything we strive to do in one way or or another um, is an effort to take on physical, visible, knowable shape before others and ourselves. We work our tails off at the office. We go on detoxes and exercise like 50-year-old Olympiads. We clean and tidy until our fingers are raw. We post endless selfies on social media. We dress in vintage fashion. And we do all this because deep inside of us is Eve, naked, ashamed, lost, grasping at anything with which to make herself look better than she is, trying for what would be the first time in the history of mankind to earn God's love and approval. So much of our sin, if you think about it, has its roots here in trying horizontally instead of vertically to fulfill this desire to be seen and loved and acknowledged. And holy cow, is it exhausting to keep up that hunt. Aren't you tired? I'm tired. (laughs) So let me give you something that speaks right into that. We talked about God's love as particularly steadfast, as sprinkled hundreds of times like fairy dust all over the Old Testament, right? Here's the peculiar thing. In the New Testament, God's steadfast love is mentioned once, just once. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, we read, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That's it in the whole New Testament. This literally like blows my mind. It's as if that scripture is saying God's steadfast love has found its full completion and its final expression in Christ. God's countless promises in the Old Testament to be steadfast in his love, to remain fixed, are answered and finished once and for all in Jesus, Emmanuel, who by his very name means God with us. What I love about this is that it brings to mind the physicality of God's love yet again. His love isn't just a feeling or a concept or something we just generally know. It is embodied in a person who showed his love in humongous, countercultural, mysterious, nonsensical actions. God's love expressed through Jesus healed the ill. It comforted the lonely. It washed feet. It made crazy people sane. It raised the dead. And it made the invisible, translucent, hated, outskirts sort of people, which really is to say all of us, visible. And it brought them right into the center of his loving fold. 
When I am sick at home, behind on deadlines, wondering why nobody is reading what I write, or liking my hilarious Instagram posts. <laughs> Homesick is all get out for Alabama Roll Tide. When I'm missing my husband, would do anything to escape to Tahiti for a week. What comforts me is not the notion of a loving God, but the truth of a physical, in-the-flesh person who loves me so much that he died so he could be with me forever. Steadfast, fixed, unchanging. These words have shape. They feel heavy, tangible, hearable, seeable, almost like God showing up as an angel to Hagar at the well. So one of my uh, favorite B-list celebrities on the scene right now um, is an actress named Busy Phillips. Does anybody know Busy Phillips? I kind of hate that I love her, but I do. I just love her. Um, So Busy came out with a memoir this year, and one of the central themes of the book is her desire to be seen, which is so interesting coming from a famous person who is first and foremost visible. And while this is definitely not an endorsement for her book by any means, she tells a story in it that so encapsulates God's strange and magnificent and particular love and mercy for his sinful people. Busy was raised Catholic, and she talks about how she loved church growing up. She says, I loved taking the body and blood of Christ. I loved listening to the priest give his sermon, trying to always make it relatable and modern. I loved putting dollars in the little wicker donation basket and passing it down the aisle. I loved lighting a tea candle at the little altar and saying a prayer for someone who needed it. But I had pretty much stopped going to church by the time I was in high school. It was hard to find the value in sitting there. I thought God had abandoned me in the back of an SUV. You see, when she was 14, Busy was raped by an older boy in the back of his car. In a year or so after that unimaginable trauma, she discovered she had become pregnant by her high school boyfriend. Now, the full details of the story are completely tragic, and unfortunately, Busy decided to go through with an abortion. When her boyfriend's parents, who were also devout Catholics, found out that she was going to abort the baby, they called her a murderer, said she was going to hell, and all sorts of other just devastating things for a deeply broken, deeply confused teenager to hear. Busy says, In my gut, I knew there was some truth to it. I knew it was a baby, or rather that she would become a baby if I didn't put an end to her. Somehow, I also knew it was a girl. I could feel it. And of course, this guilt and shame and torment carried on after her abortion, as she watched a classmate who had gotten pregnant around the same time, also with a little girl, actually go through with her pregnancy. Busy says, I cried regularly in bed at night, sure, not only that I had murdered a baby, but that I was also going to hell. How would God ever forgive me? How would my own father? How would I? Now, a few months after this, um, Busy was on a school trip in Rome and found herself smack dab in the middle of and awestruck by the Vatican. Cutting into the wonder of it all, somebody nearby yells, The Pope is here. Right then, a handful of meticulously providential things happened in a matter of seconds. 
As busy as trying to get closer to the Pope, she's swept into this feverish crowd. One person pulls her, another pushes, and suddenly, miraculously, she finds herself face to face with Pope John Paul II. And this is how she describes it. He smiled and laughed and took my cheeks in his hands and said something softly, in Italian, I guess, a prayer for me. He made the sign of the cross on me and put his palm to my forehead and then nodded at me and turned and walked away back through the door where the Pope goes to do Pope stuff. I remember his eyes. They were soft. I remember that he really had love for me, truly. I remember I knew it was okay. She says, I've never told this story publicly. I haven't even told people I'm very close with. It almost feels sacrilegious for me to be typing these words now, giving this to the world, imagining having to talk about this in an interview for a gossip magazine to sell my book, or seeing the headline, reducing what was the most incredible thing that has ever happened to me to clickbait. That I don't exist without this story. And the story doesn't exist without this ending. It doesn't work for me without getting the absolution I needed and from the only person in the world who could give it to me, the Pope in Rome. When we got back to the hotel, I called my parents and woke them up. It was June 14, 1995 in Rome, June 13 in Arizona. It was my due date. Whew. That is physical, tangible, smiling, nodding, cheeks pinching, staring you in the face, steadfast love in the midst of unimaginable guilt and shame and suffering. It is evidence of a God who loves us particular, particularly, who will bring us face to face with the Pope in Rome to remind us of that love. But the good news for Busy and for all of us is that the Pope isn't really the final word on our absolution, is he? Jesus is. Romans 5 reminds us God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't need the Pope to prove this to be true. Like Mary Oliver, I need only to stand wherever I am to be blessed. This hits home for me in a bone and marrow and sinew kind of way. This absolute need we all have not only to be seen, but to be seen right in the ugliest parts of our messes. A notion that is so deep, so requisite, that like the story of Hagar suggests, just to be known and seen in our circumstances might even supersede the circumstances themselves. As you'll remember from her story in Genesis, all God does is to physically come before her and tell her that he knows her, that he knows what will become of her and her unborn, son, unborn child. And with that, all of Hagar's plans are completely undone. She doesn't even put up a fight when God tell her, tells her to go back to that awful Sarai, whom God also loved, by the way. No, overcome and worshipful, she actually gushes, you are the God who sees me. 
or like the other woman at the well from John 4, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Friends, like Busy, like Hagar, like the woman at the well, God sees you and knows every raw and gritty and shameful and uncompromising detail of your sin and bad personality and questionable decisions. And because of Jesus, his steadfast love remains ever fixed on the object of his desire, you. Second, and finally, God sees us and loves us in our future glory. So if I really think about it, so much of what I actually believe about love is conditional. I will be lovable once I have a socially acceptable body shape. I will be lovable once I know I am capable of writing a second book. I will be lovable once I can stick to my plan to not drink wine on weekdays. (laughs) And I tend to view the love of God in the same way I view love from other people in the world. Transactional. Participate in more church activities? Receive love. Read your Bible more often? Receive love. But murder shows on Netflix and wine on Wednesday? Tisk tisk. <laughs> this is a truth that's, that has so much trouble sinking into our hearts and resting there, that God's love does not work like this. It is not transactional. Jesus already made that transaction on our behalf when he took our place and died the death that we deserved. And guess what? This is like, this, this part just really, my mind spins here. Um, On the cross, Jesus didn't just take the punishment for all of our bad things. He gave us the reward for all of his good things. So God sees us in our sin, yes, and yet in Christ, he has also clothed us as a wholly new creation in robes of the most majestic righteousness. This is literally unbelievable for me to like actually think about. Okay, so what does God see when he looks at me? Uh, clothed in my particular righteousness. Scripture is not exactly clear on this. The fine print is a little blurry, but I like to imagine it's something at least physically resembling Olivia Newton-John in Xanadu. (laughs) Really over the top. Big hair and fringe. But really, do you know what this means? It means that God isn't just with us and loving us in our brokenness. When he looks at us, he also sees us in all our future glory, as in the people that were going to be in heaven, fully lovable, fully loving, fully loved. To God, we are literally those people right now. And I'm about to make a really bad metaphor here. But imagine God has some kind of like Jesus thermal goggles on, like, like night vision type of stuff. Like without them on, there we are in the broken here and now, and (laughs) he loves us. And then with them on, Xanadu. So, but if you can imagine, it isn't, it isn't, this is so hard to explain because it's not one and then the other, you know, it's a both and all at the same time. Time. That's why the thermal thing works. Are y'all tracking? Okay. Um, That's the best I could do. I'm not sure that's theologically accurate, but let's land here. This healed, 
unbroken, unwounded, perfectly and fully loved, perfectly and fully known version of yourself, the you that's nearly impossible to imagine unless you've given it some thought like me, this is who God sees when he looks at you right now. And that he can see you in this way, this redeemed, restored you, the you whom you were always meant to be, is the magnificent result of his steadfast love at last fulfilled in Christ. So do you all remember in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan crowns the Pevensey kids as kings and queens of Narnia? Of course you do because it's the greatest series of all time. (laughs) He crowns them King Peter the Magnificent, Queen Susan the Gentle, King Edmund the Just, Queen Lucy the Valiant. I will never forget when I was in high school and Paul Zoll signed copies of one of his books for my siblings and I in the same vein. He addressed mine to Queen Charlotte the Remarkable. And something about that word being spoken over me felt just like completely holy. Was I remarkable? I was a 17-year-old nightmare. No, I was not remarkable. But reading that inscription for the first time felt a little bit like looking at heaven me. It glorified me. And now I think remarkable might be how God sees me with his Jesus thermal goggles on. And y'all, he never takes those goggles off. Like Psalm 103 says, he has crowned each one of us in his steadfast love and mercy. And on the cross, Jesus also crowned us in his glory. Because of Jesus, God sees and loves us at every angle. But without grasping the full weight and shape of that love, we are left to look for it elsewhere. In my case, that's usually Instagram or Pilates or an insane overabundance of chemical-free anti-aging facial products. (laughs) It's a problem. I feel aggression towards my husband and resentment towards my children and find myself daydreaming about another life altogether, possibly, probably in Italy, where I am seen and known and loved in a way that transcends anything I could even imagine, probably by a a tall, dark man with an exotic accent. (laughs) Friends, you and I can put down that fight. You can stand at the well that never runs dry and bathe in the living water of God's steadfast love for you through Jesus because you are, I am, seen and known and loved in a way that really does transcend everything you could even imagine, which is why I'm up here batting around flawed metaphors like Jesus thermal goggles. (laughs) His love is so great that it's beyond our actual imaginations. So spending some time tenderizing in my own steadfast love bath these last few weeks has reminded me a lot of those videos you see of babies who've just received hearing aids or cochlear implants um, for the first time. It's as if once I had not heard, and now I had heard. With that in mind, let's check this one out. Before. Oh. 
Now that you're all sobbing. Um, <laughs> um, I just love the way the baby responds when she says, I love you. It's like, it's like she knows what she's being told and who's telling it to her. So for me, I had lost the way to the way. And I didn't just find a voice, but a warm, physical, present, in-the-flesh person with a scent and a breath, and a heartbeat, someone like a mother, embracing, speaking words over me, like the mom here, I love you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. If God's love is as physical and tangible as the Bible says it is, a voice, a pillar, an embrace, a sacrifice, we can expect to experience that love all around us here and now. Psalm 119.64 says, The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. And because God loves each of us particularly, we can expect to experience that love in ways that are particular to us. For me, day to day, I've noticed God loving me in details of the outdoors. This, per, this particular scent in the air in Long Beach that reminds me of where I grew up visiting in Florida. Or the wind, which has always felt in some way like God's physical presence with me. A Saturday morning drinking coffee under my gravity blanket while watching the Today Show and listening to my kids giggle in the other room because the husband is tending to them and not me. <laughs> A song that plays on shuffle just at the right moment. A sweet, unplanned coffee with a friend. My bare feet on the cold stone of the back patio as the world is just beginning to wake up. My daughter telling me constantly how cute I am. <laughs> and of course, a warm bath. And then the many intricate and intimate ways he has shown up in my greatest despair my most dizzying confusion, my most unbearable isolation. He shows up to me in his word, of course, and also in TV shows like Gilmore Girls or The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel to remind me that, yes, the world is dark and sad and broken, but it is also filled with color and humor and heart and a lightness divine that is absolutely all around us, even especially in the wilderness places. We have a God who loves us so much that he stops us in our willy-nilly tracks, like Hagar or Busy Phillips or me. And he says things like, I am the God who sees you in your suffering, in your illness, in your loneliness, in your insecurity, in your grief, 
in your shame, in your unbelief. In a gesture of pure love, he said to me three weeks ago, close your laptop, Charlotte. Go draw yourself a warm bath, maybe add some bubbles. And by the way, I love you so much that I'd like to point out that you don't really believe that I love you. Take a beat. And this is what I've been learning. God does not love me like an uncle, as in I have to love her because she's my sister's kid. No. He loves me with an everlasting, enduring, never stopping, never giving up, always there, intimate, desperate kind of love. It is, like Mary Oliver has said, like fires for the cold, ropes let down to the lost, something as necessary as bread in the pockets of the hungry. This love, by its very definition, let's go over it again, is personal and pointed, not broad and spread out in general. It is specific. It has an object. It is physical, tangible, certain, undeniably there and with you. It is warm and unwavering and selfless. It has gestures. It makes gestures. It is active, held captive, always working. It delights, and it is ever fixed on you. Like Psalm 119 says, God's love comes to us, it comforts us, and it gives us life. And all of this is proved true now and forever in one single in-the-flesh person, King Jesus the Steadfast, who poured out his love for you and for me on a cross. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, like the prophet Isaiah says, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Lord, that you would make your steadfast, particular love known to each one of your precious children in this room, that it would take shape, that we would hear it, see it, feel its arms around us. Thank you for your steadfast love, your grace shown to us finally in the life and death of your son Jesus. In his holy name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.